your congregation, if you turn again now, please, to the second book of Kings, chapter 5, the part of God's Word that we read, Second Kings, chapter 5. And here we have the, the well-known, the well-loved story of Naaman the Syrian. Even the, the children here will, will know this story uh, of the great Syrian general Naaman. Naaman was a great man. Naaman was a man who the little children on the streets of Damascus and Syria would have loved to pretend to be. He was the one who had won many battles for Syria. He had fought many battles. He had turned the course of many battles. He was a great man. He was a rich man. He was a famous man. The king loved this man. Uh, Naaman was a great man. But there are five words in verse 1 that change everything about Naaman. But he was a leper. And so for all that he had, all the power, all the prestige, all the money, all the fame, all the medals of war, he was a leper, and he would give anything to be rid of his leprosy. Well, as you know, there's this, there is this little girl who was carried away from the land of Israel. She was taken away, kidnapped, really, from her home in Israel. She was probably something like nine or ten years old, something like that. And she was taken away, and she's living in Naaman's house. She's helping Naaman's wife now. And she says in verse 3, basically, to Naaman's wife, there is a prophet in the land of Samaria, or the land of Israel, that would heal Naaman of his leprosy. And so you see this remarkable series of events. Naaman hears about what this little girl said, and he goes to the king and he tells the king what this little girl said. And the king writes him a letter and Naaman goes with lots of gold and lots of silver and a huge wardrobe of great clothing and horses and servants and his chariot. And off he goes to the land of Israel. He believes what this little girl said. Well, he comes to the land of Israel and he goes to the palace. Where would you expect to find a prophet who can heal a person of leprosy? You would expect to find such a person in a great place. You would look for him in a palace. And so he goes to the palace and he finds there the king of Israel, who is King Jehoram, who is not a good man, he's not a good king. And King Jehoram disappoints Naaman. King Jehoram thinks that Naaman wants a fight. He's coming here and he's a spy perhaps, or he, he's trying to pick a fight. And he begins to tear his clothes. The prophet Elisha hears about this, and he sends a letter to, uh, to the king of Israel to say, stop tearing your clothes, send Naaman to me. Remember, the little girl did not say go to the king. She had said go to the prophet Send him to me, and he will know that what the little girl said is true. There is a prophet in Israel. And so in verse 9, we have Naaman now coming with his horses and 
with his chariot, and he stands at the door of the house of Elisha. Well, this is a great story. This is a story that we we love. But we also have to remember it's more than just a story. What, What we have here is a picture of the gospel way of salvation. We have a picture here of the cleansing of sinners from spiritual leprosy, which is sin. And so this morning, we want to look at this gospel way of salvation as we see it here in the conversion of Naaman. And I want to look at several of the ways in which this narrative tells us about the gospel. And the first thing we can say here is that the gospel has a drawing power. The gospel has a drawing power. Here you have Naaman with leprosy. He has a problem. But there, there are many things in the lives of people that can, begin, that can begin to make them seek salvation, that can begin to bring them to the gospel. There can be simply the emptiness of life. That there can be the, the, the broken and the shattered dreams. There can be the the illness that will not go away. There there can be the fear of death or the death of a loved one. There can be the the sense that there is something desperately wrong inside of me. I don't know what it is, perhaps people will say, but I have this sense that something is wrong. We call that, boys and girls, a guilty conscience. And there can even be curiosity. You remember when Pilgrim or excuse me, when Christian leaves the city of destruction in Pilgrim's Progress. He, he has this burden on his back and it makes him seek to be relieved of it. And he meets evangelist and evangelist points him to the wicket gate. And so Christian leaves the city of destruction and he's on his way to the celestial city and two friends quickly come out to try to bring him back. One's called obstinate, the other's called pliable. Obstinate, he's not interested. He doesn't want to know He just wants to bring Christian back. But Pliable, Pliable's interested. Pliable's curious. Pliable has questions. There there is, we can say, a certain drawing power in what Christian is speaking about. What is this? Who is this king of this celestial city? What are these streets of gold? What what are these blessings of which you speak? And, And you see, there's something about the gospel that has at, at this level a drawing power. People will say, what is this message in this world where we, that is crumbling and suffering, where there's so much confusion and brokenness and hurt? What is this message that speaks of healing and of cleansing and of comfort and of peace and of a hope that you can never lose and a joy that the world cannot give you or take from you about a love that this world knows nothing of? What is this message? And this, the gospel then has a certain attraction, yes, to lost and unconverted people. You see that here with Naaman. Naaman has leprosy. He's, he's an unconverted man. He's, he's a proud man. And yet, at the whisper, at the whisper of a slave girl, a little maid, a little Jewish maid, what does she know? 
Well, how, how, how can she advise the great Naaman? And yet there's something in what she says that makes Naaman pack his silver and pack his gold and get his chariot and his horses and his servants and a letter of commendation and make the long trip all the way to Israel. Why? Because there is something that she says that has a drawing power, this very simple message of hope and cleansing. And you might be here this morning. And you might say of yourself, I, I have no faith, I, I have no hope, I, I have no gospel hope or love, and yet there is something in this message, this gospel message, that draws me. You might remember the words of Robert Murray McChain in that poem when he says, speaking about his unconverted days, I oft read with pleasure. To soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure or John's simple page. Yet even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah said, Can you was nothing to me, and yet there was a pleasure in the reading of Isaiah and John. So the gospel has a drawing power. But secondly here, we want to see the simplicity of the gospel the simplicity of the gospel. In many ways, this is such a, it, it is such a beautiful characteristic about the gospel. The gospel is basically a simple message. Yes, there are some texts and chapters and even books of the Bible that are hard and difficult to understand. Peter writes that about Paul. Some of the things he says are hard to be understood. And then we have to wrestle with our own hearts and our own sinfulness and our own unbelief. And we have questions. What does it really mean to believe? Do I, have I really repented? Have I repented in the right way? Have I repented enough? The kinds of questions that people can ask. And there's our own sinfulness, as we said. And the Bible tells us that we are to strive, to agonize, to enter in at the straight gate. So we're not saying this is easy. But the message itself is simple and clear. Look at the way the gospel came to Naaman, boys and girls. There was nothing difficult in what the little maid girl said. It was very clear in verse 3. She said, I wish that Naaman was in Samaria because in Samaria, in Israel, there is a prophet who would heal him of his leprosy. That's clear. That's simple enough. And there was nothing difficult in what Elisha's servant told Naaman. The message that came from Elisha in verse 10 here, go to the Jordan River, says Elisha, and wash in it seven times. And your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Well, this is very clear. This is very simple. There's nothing, there's no strings attached here. There's no small print. It's very clear. It's very simple. There's a clear problem. There's a clear prescription. And there's a clear promise. Here's the problem. You're dirty. You are unclean spiritually. A great problem, yes. A clear problem and a clear prescription. The Jordan River, that river, seven times. And a clear promise that comes with that prescription. You do this, you will be clean. Clear problem, clear prescription, clear promise. What more could you ask? Well, my dear friends, it's the same way the gospel comes to us. Lord's day by Lord's day, clear problem. You're a sinner. You're a great sinner. 
You need forgiveness. You need cleansing. You're evil, born in sin. But there's a clear prescription. If we confess our sin, if we come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if we look to Him and to Calvary's cross, there's the glorious, clear prescription. Look unto me and be saved. And, and with it comes the clear promise time after time. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Clear problem, clear prescription, clear promise. It's so clear. It's so simple. And, and indeed, every possible problem we have is simply and clearly answered for us in the Word of God. I'm a great sinner. Paul says so clearly in Timoth- 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Oh, but it must be given. The Word of God says so clearly in Ezekiel uh, 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart. I don't know if it's for me. I don't know if I'm part of that sovereign, electing love of God. And the Word of God comes so clearly in John 6, 37 and says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. It's so gloriously simple and clear, the message itself. But thirdly here, not only do we see the gospel has a drawing power, not only do we see the simplicity of the gospel, but thirdly here we see proud man's reaction to the gospel. Now, how does Naaman respond? How would you respond? If you had leprosy, if if you had this one thing you would give absolutely anything to be rid of and you come all this way and you've brought money with you and silver and gold and you're prepared to bargain at a great rate and you're told all you need to do is wash and you're clean. Today the leprosy is gone. How would you respond? How does Naaman respond? Well, let's look at Naaman. Naaman comes, you can picture him, he comes to Elisha, his little house. Likely it was just a little house, perhaps a little mud house with one door and one window. And he had come from the palace of Syria. He had gone to the palace of Israel. He he had left the palace in Israel and he's going to search for this great prophet. And he's come with his horses and his chariot and his gold and his silver and his great uh, change of raiment. And don't you think that the, the, the very simplicity of of uh, Elisha's house would have unnerved him. He wasn't used to this kind of this kind of home. And then uh, Luke, who comes out to meet him, it's not Elisha, but it's the servant. And you can imagine Naaman saying, "Where's the prophet? Where's Elisha? He's in the house. Well, why is he not coming out to meet me? Doesn't he know who I am?" Doesn't he realize what, I, what I've done to come here? And, and then what does the servant tell him to do but to, to wash? Verse 10, go wash and, uh, in the Jordan seven times and you will be healed. And, and Naaman here, here's his reaction. He, he is absolutely furious. He is beside himself with anger. The anger swells up inside him. Verse 11, he was wroth. That means he's furious. And at the end of verse 12, he turns away in a rage. 
He is absolutely beside himself with anger. Nobody has ever spoken or treated me in this kind of a way. This is obscene, he thinks. He's insulting me. He's saying I need to be washed. Children, if your mom says to you that you need to be washed, what does that mean? It means you're dirty. She might look at you and say, well, you're filthy. Go wash. Go have a bath. And Naaman's, when he's told you need to go wash, he realizes what's being told to him. You're unclean. You're, you're, you're not just dirty, but you have disease. That's, that's the offense. It's not just dirt, as one man said. It's disease. This is what Elisha is saying to Naaman. Naaman, you're a sinner. It's far worse than you've ever thought. And Naaman, he says, this is an outrage. And he goes away fuming mad. My dear friends, nothing has changed. The preaching of the cross, Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.18, is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You know, here comes this simple message, wash and be clean. And the Bible comes so simply and says, as Peter does in that great Pentecost sermon, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But do you know what the Bible tells us about the proud? Psalm 10 verse 4, the, the wicked because of the pride of their face. Do not seek after God. Why is someone converted? Because God has humbled their pride and they have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Why is someone under the gospel unconverted? Because they're proud and they refuse to call upon the name of the Lord. One person said, Naaman wanted Elisha to think of him as a great man who happened to be a leper. Whereas Elisha thought of him as a leper who happened to be a great man. So here's proud man's reaction. But then fourthly, and related to that, you've got the twisting of the gospel. You have the twisting of the gospel. Pride has a way of making you irrational. It can make you angry like Naaman here. And one of the things that pride does is it, it twists. It, it takes what you say. Maybe you've had that. You, you say something to someone and suddenly you hear from someone else that you said this. And you said, I never said that at all. They, they've twisted what I said. I didn't say that. I said this. And, and, and a subtle change in, what, in a word or two can give a completely different sense to what you said. That's what pride does with the gospel. The gospel is simple. The gospel is clear. And yet pride, pride doesn't listen. Pride talks but doesn't listen. And pride twists the gospel. And pride speaks rather than listens. So here's Naaman in verse 11. And he's coming in with all his own thoughts, you notice. 
I thought, he says, that Elisha would surely have come out to me. I thought he would have stood in front of me. I thought he would have called upon the name of his Lord. I thought he would strike his hand. He would do some great thing. He would perform some great miracle that would be seen by everybody. This would be the talk of Israel. This would be the talk of Samaria. This would be the talk of Egypt. This would be the talk of the world. I thought it would be like this. Instead, having come all this way, he tells me through his servant that I I need to take a bath in this piddly little Jordan River. An outrage, he says. Are are Urbana and Farpar not better? The rivers of Damascus, are they not better than this? But you you see, Naaman, he's missing the point. He's not listening. He's giving his own thoughts. Uh, Abana and Farpar, another old English preacher said, Abana and Farpar would do well if all that was involved was dirt. But this is more than a question of dirt. It's a question of disease. And there is nothing that will cure the disease but God's remedy. But my friends, here's the thing. This I thought finds an echo in the hearts of sinners today. And in our own hearts, it may be providence, it may be work, it may be marriage, it can be anything. We put our own thoughts in. We do it so often. This is what I'm thinking. And we're not listening. And we're not listening to God. But when that comes into salvation, when we don't listen to God, When we come in with our own thoughts, when we have our, I thought it would be like this, I think it should be like this. When we we, we end up making or looking for some kind of allowance for my own contribution. We have our own, so to speak, abanas or farpars. We, we, want to, we would prefer to wash in the abana of church membership. I've been here all my life. My parents were here. My grandparents, my great-grandparents were here in this church. That has to count for something. I've been baptized in here. I've gone through the lessons. I've listened to the sermons. I've made confession of faith. That has to count at the level of, of salvation. That has to register. Or the far part of morality... I'm a good person. Well, at least I'm not as bad as other people. I I measure well when I compare myself with my friends and my peers. And that has to count for something. I have to, that has to tip the balance in some kind of way. And the word of God comes and cuts through it all and says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And what God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 there is this. He says, your thoughts aren't even close. As the heavens are high above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts. You're not even close. It might be a small twist, but it's an infinite distortion of the gospel. If anyone preaches any other gospel, Paul says, let him be accursed. So there's this twisting of the gospel with our own thoughts, our refusal to listen. But then verse 5, beautifully here in verse 13, we have the reasonableness of the gospel. I wonder what you think your reaction would be 
to Naaman. If you're the servant or if you're Elisha, what would you think when you see Naaman leaving here? Here's a person who, who's the head of the armies of Syria, the, the, the Syrians who came and who kidnapped many of our children, who raid our land. They're our enemies. And here's this Naaman, and he's come all this way. But look at, look at how proud he is. Well, what arrogance in this man. What would, you, what would your reaction be to Naaman as he turns away in a rage and goes back to Syria? Would it be, just leave him. Just leave him. Let him go back. Well, the Lord would speak to us and he would tell us this. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And through these servants, in verse 13, the Lord comes and reasons again with Naaman. My father, they say in verse 13, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much rather then when he says, wash and be clean? Would you not, what would you not do to be clean, Naaman? You would do some great thing, would you not? Indeed, that might be what you want to do. But you, Naaman, would do anything to get rid of your leprosy. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, if he had told you you need to go back to Syria and back here crawling on your knees, you would do it. If, you have, if he said you have to go back to Syria and double the gold and double the silver and double the servants and, and double the wardrobe, you would have done it. What would you not do, Naaman, to be rid of your leprosy? And yet, how much more ought we not to do it when all he is saying to you is wash and be clean? And my friends, it is exactly the same with us today. If the gospel had come to you, children, Old people here, all of us here, if the gospel had come to us, yes, even in our earliest days, and had told us, this is the way you can have peace with God. This is the way you can have everlasting glory in heaven. This is the way you can be a son and a daughter of the Most High. This is a way where you can have God smile upon you for all eternity. This is what you need to do. You need to pray seven hours a day. You need to read your Bible seven, uh, uh, ten chapters a day. You, you need to have pilgrimages to Israel and to Jerusalem once a year. Would you not do it? If that is what it meant to take away your sin, if that is what it was to take you out of hell and put you into everlasting glory, would you not do it? How much more then when the Lord says to you so clearly in his word, that is not my thought. This is my thought. Wash in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be clean. The reasonableness of the gospel as Naaman turns and leaves to go away, and as we wave him goodbye, the word of God goes back to Naaman and says, Naaman, come now, let us reason together. Saith the Lord, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as the wool. Let's sixthly here look at the power of the gospel. There is great power here. 
Indeed, in verse 14, there is more power in 2 Kings 5 verse 14 than in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, children, there is great power. There is awesome power. God simply speaks and it is. He says, let there be light and there is light. He says, let the dry land appear and the dry land appears. He speaks the word and in awesome power. It is. But here's the thing about 2 Kings 5 verse 14. The God who is all-powerful, the God who is omnipotent, cannot simply say, let there be forgiveness. And there is forgiveness. He cannot, by the mere word of his power, do what he did in Genesis 1. For there to be the humbling of a sinner, for there to be the cleansing of a sinner, for there to be this message that says, wash and you will be clean. It required that someone else would go into this Jordan. Some seven to eight hundred years later, John the Baptist is there in the same Jordan River. And he's baptizing sinners, sinners who have sinned, sinners who are, have, have been unclean and unfaithful and told lies and stolen and taken God's name in vain. Sinners are coming to this baptism. It's a baptism for sinners. And here comes one, and, and John looks at him and says, why are you coming here? The Lord Jesus Christ comes into this Jordan and says, baptize me. And John says, why? What evil have you done? And he says, I do this because this is the way to fulfill all righteousness. And here Jesus takes the sinner's place. That's what he's doing in the Jordan. Because he would take their place on Calvary's tree when he would bear our iniquities, when he would carry our sorrows, when he would take our sins, our spiritual leprosy, when God would make him who knew no sin, sin for us. He is there in Calvary's tree, hanging the righteous one, the sinless one, the pure one, the, the spotless Lamb of God. That's why there's more power in 2 Kings 5.14 than there is in Genesis 1. Because to save a sinner from their sin, it required the, the suffering and the death of the Son of God in our nature. So that it would be said, with his stripes, we are healed. Well, lastly here, seventhly, not only is there the power of the gospel, there is in Naaman the unmistakable effect of the gospel. Is Naaman truly converted? And if you think he is, how do you know? We know he's cured from his physical leprosy, but what about his heart leprosy? Is he really converted? How do you know? Naaman is truly converted. And you know because of the unmistakable effects that always accompany conversion to one degree or to another. And you have a list of them here. In verse 15, there's 
gratitude or thankfulness. He, he returns to Elisha. Reminds you, doesn't it, of the leper who returned to the Lord Jesus. There were ten who were healed. Only one returns. Well, here is one who returns. Here is one who comes back and expresses gratitude and thankfulness. There's not only that, there's also a confession of faith there in verse 15 in the middle. There's a confession of faith in the Lord as the one and only God. Now, you might th- look at that and think this is, this, is, or, this is obvious. But you have to remember, Naaman is brought up in Syria. Naaman is brought up in a place where they believe in many gods. That's what their catechism told them. That's what his instruction told him. That's what everything in Syria was telling him. There are many gods. There are, there's Rimen and there's Baals and there's Ashtaroths and there's, there's all kinds of gods. There are many gods. It's, it's up to you to find the one that works for you, as it were. But here is an astonishing statement from Naaman the Syrian. Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but Jehovah alone, the one who is in Israel. There's this confession of faith in Jehovah, the Lord. There's also humility. Really, that's one of the most clear and beautiful marks of grace, humility. He comes and he doesn't... And look look at what he calls himself at at the very end of verse 15. Thy servant. I am your servant, he's saying now to Elisha. And it tells us his flesh had become like a little child. But he had become like a little child. What is it to become like a little child? It's not to become innocent. Little children are not innocent. To become like a little child is to do what little children do do. And that is listen and take what their parents say at their word. That's exactly what it says here about Naaman. He took the prophet according to his word. He has become like a little child. There is humility here. And there's worship, verse 17. In the middle there, thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Now I will worship the Lord. He has no desire for Rimen. Yes, he's saying here, I think that, yes, I will have to be in the house because I I, I have this duty to my master and he will lean upon me and and such will be my posture that I will come down. But I am not worshipping Rimen. Forgive me in this act of duty I have to do to the king. And Elisha then says, go in peace, shalom, wholeness. So Naaman is an unmistakably converted man. Well, what a wonderful picture of the gospel way of salvation. And so we ask ourselves these kinds of questions then. Have we come to see in our lives that our problem is not just that we're dirty, it's not something that we can clean up ourselves, but that we are spiritually unclean by nature? So you wouldn't take offense if someone came and the Word of God comes and says, Here's your heart. It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. You would say that's true. And have we given up our own thoughts? Do do, do we have this humility where we stop talking and we start listening to God, listening to His Word? Humility. And specifically, do you listen and do you agree with God's thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Remember when Jesus was in the Jordan and God opened the heavens and the Spirit came down and God pronounced his thought on his Son? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And faith will look at that thought of God and say, Amen. He is altogether lovely. I am altogether satisfied with Christ. Do we know also then this transforming power of the gospel? Has there been this unmistakable change in our lives? We're going in a different direction. No, we're not what we want to be. We're not what we hope we will be. We're not what we could be. We, we understand all that. But there is nevertheless a change of direction and a change that finds expression in the desire to worship the Lord. To say a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. To, to love his people, to love his word, to love his day, to love his praise. To love the Lord our God. And lastly, have we done the little thing? We have the great things that we think we ought to do or ought to be done to us. The great experiences maybe that we're looking for. And the word of God's coming and saying, what about this thing? This relatively little thing. In comparison to your thought, have you washed? Have you been to Calvary? Is this word enough for you? Do all your hopes and confidence rest in these simple words and these glorious words of Jesus? Wash and be clean. Amen.